We saw in our study last week that chapter 3 began with it telling us that the word of the Lord was rare in those days and there was no widespread revelation. The word of the Lord was rare and there was no widespread revelation. But then we see at the end of the chapter that it tells us, Then the Lord appeared again in Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord was rare because there was sin in the nation amongst the priesthood. And we talked about that at length in our time together last week. But then God began to raise up this young man by the name of Samuel. And as Samuel's being raised up, God starts talking to him. He starts speaking to him. He starts revealing himself to Samuel. And the word of the Lord was then, then began to be shared amongst the people. Now, chapter 4 begins with, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, God is raising up Samuel to be a prophet. He's now speaking for the Lord to the people there in the nation of Israel. But a prophet is of no profit if he's not being listened to. Now, Israel is finally at a place where they're hearing from the Lord, but the people are still wanting to do what they want to do. They're still doing things or doing what was right in their own eyes, as we saw how the end of the book of Judges, the Judges ended in that way, that everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes. And someone at this particular time in Israel gets the idea that they should go out into battle against the Philistines. And so the people are going to do that, as we'll see here in the chapter, and they do so without consulting the Lord. And anytime you do anything, especially anything of any substance, without consulting the Lord, it ends up or it can result in trouble. We pick it up. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. And then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Now, the Philistines were a very capable group of fighters. And the Philistines originated in the island of Crete, and they came down to the southeast corner of Palestine around the year 1500 B.C. And the Philistines de developed a very sophisticated array of weapons that made them a dominant force in the region. If you're a baseball fan, the, the Philistines might have resembled the New York Yankees, you know? You know how the Yankees, they have a wide array of weapons. And, you know, we noticed over the, the, the winter season, they signed, you know, A-Rod, Alex Rodriguez. And it's like they have this all-star team of players and you know if you're a baseball fan unless you are a Yankee fan there's one team in Major League Baseball that you probably hate and that's the Yankees because they've stockpiled you know this array of weapons well that's kind of like what the Philistines had done 
Now, they, they had, as we'll see in a few weeks, they had some major weapons in the form of some giants like Goliath. But they also had a very sophisticated array of weapons for doing battle. They formed a confederation of five cities. Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, Gath, which is where Goliath came from, and Eskelon were the five cities that made up this federation. And it was this federation of these five cities that made the Philistines a real force to be reckoned with at that time. It made them a very, very tough enemy. Now, even though the Philistines were such a great power, the people of Israel realized that they were defeated because God was punishing them. Notice verse 3, it says, And when the people had come into the camp, this is after this battle, after this defeat, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They saw this battle, they saw how they were defeated, and they saw the hand of the Lord behind it. They saw the hand of the Lord behind this defeat. You know, it would do us well to see the hand of the Lord behind the things that take place in our life, both our victories and our defeats. It would do us well. It would be good for us to understand that things just don't happen by chance. But there is a reason and that there is a purpose And oftentimes, the Lord's hand is behind the things that are taking place in our lives. We we saw, we witnessed a part of this this week. A little girl, a little second grader in our school, Rachel Swap. She fell a couple days ago out of a two-story window and landed on the concrete. She was knocked unconscious and they were fearing that there was going to be some brain damage as well as some broken bones. Now, as of yesterday, the report that that I was given, it was a complete miracle. No broken bones, hardly some scratches, a bump on the head, but no uh, neurological damage whatsoever. Out of a two story window onto concrete. People heard that. People began to pray. The the prayer chain was ignited and there's power in prayer. And while she was unconscious there in the hospital, suddenly she started to make a miraculous turnaround. The hand of God. And we see that, you know, so readily that the hand of God working in the lives of, of his people, but also. You can see the hand of God in in our defeats because the Bible tells us that whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And because he loves us, he's not going to allow us to go, you know, in very long into areas of sin without seeking to do something to get our attention, something to wake us up, something for us to to realize that we need to turn our eyes back to him, that we need to listen to to his voice and to what he is saying. And so the people of Israel, they realized this. They understood that, hey, this is God. God has caused us to be defeated. And then now the question that we need to ask is why? They asked this question, why has the Lord defeated us today? Why did he? Well, we saw the answer to that in our study last time, how 
the priesthood was corrupt, that there was sin amongst the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas. And we talked about how they were committing sexual immorality with the women. They were defiling the, the sacrifice of the Lord. And this is something that all of us here who are in leadership, all pastors and leaders, those in leadership, we really need to pay attention to this. We need to, to give an ear to this. We need to, to pay close attention to what is happening here because what this story tells us is that our actions can affect the whole church. That our actions, what we do, can affect the church at large. There was sin in the camp and it was amongst the priesthood and Israel goes out into battle and they're defeated because of the sin that was in the camp. And the people of Israel, they realized that God had a hand in their defeat. This is a sobering reminder for all of us who are involved in leadership. Now, someone else after this gets a bright idea that that seems like a bright idea, but it really turns into a blunder. Notice the latter part of verse 3. It says, Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Now, the ark was that wooden box. It was three feet high and three feet wide and four feet long, and it was covered with pure gold. And it sat in the Holy of Holies there in the tabernacle. And the Ark of the Covenant was that piece of the tabernacle furniture that that resembled or it represented the presence of God with his people. And it was that box, the Ark of the Covenant, that the high priest only once a year on the Day of Atonement would come before and sprinkle the blood of the sacrifice on the mercy seat that was there on top of that box covering that box. But that box represented amongst the people of Israel the presence of God, the character of God, and the nature of God. And it contained inside of it the Ten Commandments, which represented the Word of God. And so the people here are wanting to go into battle again. Let's go. Let's give it a second shot. They beat us last time, but you know, let's get the ark and we'll go into battle again. We'll charge against it. And the people get all excited about this. Verse 4, it says, So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. And when the ark of of the covenant... Of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. So they fetch the ark, and Hophni and Phinehas come bringing it down there from the tabernacle there in Shiloh. And when it comes in, the people get excited and they shout so loud that it's like an earthquake. It's like a rumbling. The earth shook. And as we're going to see, the Philistines heard it. But this was interesting to me because as you read through the Bible, you see that the Lord is into shouting. There are times when the Lord commissioned his people to shout, to let out a shout. You recall Joshua there at Jericho in Joshua chapter six. They were to march around the city. 
for six days, once a day, being totally quiet, not speaking a word. On the seventh day, they're to march around the city seven times. And at the end of that seventh time, the, the priests were going to bro their, their ram's horns. And then the people were told, they were commissioned by the Lord to let out a shout. And when they let out that shout, the walls came crumbling down. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13, the Lord gave Judah and Abijah the victory over Jeroboam, the wicked king of Israel. And it was after the victory came after they shouted. It was after they shouted. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 11, it says, Let all those who rejoice, who put their trust in you, let them shout for joy. Because you defend them. Let them shout for joy because you have defended them. In Zechariah chapter 4, there was a time when the construction of the temple was about halfway completed. And Zerubbabel, the priest, became discouraged because the, the progress had stopped. And so Zechariah, the prophet, came to Zerubbabel and told Zerubbabel to go to the foundation stone and shout unto it, grace, grace, that the mountain that is before him. The Lord told him that as he shouted, grace, grace, the mountain that was before him would be leveled like a plain. The work had stopped. Zerubbabel was discouraged. And the prophet said, this is the word of the Lord. Go to the foundation stone and shout unto it grace, grace. Grace is God's undeserved favor. In essence, what the Lord was saying there to Zerubbabel was go shout that this work is not going to be completed through our strength and our might, but through your grace. Through your work. As I thought about this, I thought, you know, every single time we drive by the property over there on Melrose, we ought to shout grace, grace unto it. Maybe it'll speed up the process, you know. Shouting. The Lord commissioning his people to shout. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're told that when the Lord returns, that he'll, he'll do so with a shout. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 13, it says, The Lord shall go forth like a mighty man, and he shall stir up his zeal like a man of war, and he shall cry out, Yes, shout aloud, he shall prevail against his enemies. Now, I am not trying or suggesting or advocating that we start getting real Pentecostal and, you know, shouting. It's not my point. It's not my point at all. But I'm simply pointing out this. Our God is a God who is into expression. Our God is a God who is is into being expressive. He likes to see his people express themselves in worship. He likes to see them express themselves and just being real with him and, and, and not being afraid, in, in essence, to be excited about him. And I think there's a point to that, something that we need to take heed to, in a sense, is to not be afraid to be expressive. 
to sing aloud. I was blessed tonight that the gal, whichever one of the many in Howard's team that was going to sing with him tonight, wasn't here. But you know what? You sisters sang anyway. You sang the parts. Howard really broke out the oldies tonight, didn't he? <laughs> and you guys sang, you know, you, you, it's like, you know, you weren't going to hold back. I commend you in that. The Lord likes for us to be expressive. Now, how expressive, you know, should you be? Well, I think be as expressive in a sense as you want to be to the point where it's not going to be drawing attention to yourself. You know, if you get out of the pew and start running all around the room here, you know, and stuff, and, and uh, somebody's going to tackle you and drag you outside the building, but, but all the attention's going to be on you and not on the Lord. But don't be afraid to, to be expressive, to lift the hands, to raise the voice, to praise the Lord. Our God is a God who he, he's into being expressive. On, on Sunday night, we had a panel discussion up here with our, our, our youth pastors. And the Sunday night crowd had wrote some questions out for them the week ahead of time. And so I got all the guys up here. I played the moderator. And Brian Mead, who is our, our new uh, high school pastor. In fact, you're going to get a chance to formally meet him next Wednesday night. He's going to share his vision for the high school ministry. And uh, also uh, going to share the word with us for communion. We have, we're having communion next week. But uh, one of the questions that came up was, should we pray out loud or, or, or pray silently? Does it matter? And he was one of the guys that answered that question. And he said, I think it's really good, at least for me, to pray out loud because, you know, I, I just sometimes I lose my train of thought. And then he said, and sometimes, I mean, I like really pray out loud. I'm sitting in my car and I'm, 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 I'm like talking real loud to the Lord. You know, I'm shouting to the Lord. So if you ever see him sitting in his car, you know, he's he's just praying, you know. Sometimes it's good. It's good to do that. Israel shouted, and the Philistines were freaked out because of it. Let's pick it up in verse 6. Now, when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. And so the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. And so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and and every man fled to his tent. And there was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And also the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now what happened here? The children of Israel, they're going out into battle. 
They're shouting out in faith. They've got the ark and they're bringing it with them. What happened? Everything seemed right, didn't it? Listen, everything wasn't right. They had the ark. They shouted. They had faith. But you see, their faith was in the wrong thing. Notice verse 3 again, the latter part of it. Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. Notice that. They said, it will save us. Their faith was in the ark of God and not the God of the ark. That was the problem. And you know what? We can find ourselves doing the same thing. We can start to think that the victory in our lives is going to to be, it's going to come from some program. If we can just follow this this program, hey, we're going to be all right. We're going to make it. We're going to be victorious in this area where we're struggling. Or we start thinking things like this. You know what? If I can just be consistent in going to church on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, I know that that's going to be the ticket. I'm going to grow. I'm going to, I'm going to just you know, have victory in this area. Or we find ourselves saying things like, you know what? I, I know what my problem is. I just need to read more. I just need to pray longer. Then I will have the victory. Now, all of those things are good things. But it's the wrong motivation. Those are good things to do, but it's the wrong motivation. And that's why we often hear people say things like this. I'm reading my Bible. I'm going to church. I'm praying. I'm following these 10 principles for successful Christian living. Yet it's not working. Why? Listen, the problem is you're looking to an it. Instead of to him. The problem is you're looking to an it. If I can just do it. If I do this. Instead of looking to him. Listen. Bible study. Bible reading. Prayer time. Going to church is all meant to bring us into that place of being in fellowship with Jesus. And surrender to Jesus. And that's the result. That's where victory comes is when we come into that place in our time in the word where we're fellowshipping with the master, where we're touching the Lord and we're being touched by the Lord. That that place of fellowship and that place of surrender, it's not an it. It's not a program. It's not if I can read through the Bible in a year. It's not if I can, you know, do so many chapters a week. It's not if I can do this thing or that thing. It's not an it. It's him. It's communing with him. It's fellowshipping with him. It's drawing near to him. And when that's the motivation, then you'll see results. Then you'll see victory. But if we get it sidetracked and we get it messed up where we start to make any of those things our particular routine and our particular program, we're going to find ourselves getting frustrated because it's not working, because we're missing the whole point of those things. And that's to be drawing near to him. Fellowshipping with him. Seeking his face. Loving him and seeking him, that makes all the difference. That makes all the difference in the world. 
So the ark is captured. Eli's sons die. Now, last week we saw in chapter 2 in verses 31 through 33, a prophecy was given to Eli where the Lord said to him that, that because of the sin of his sons and his failure to deal with their sin. Remember how we noted that he rebuked them, but he didn't remove them. And his failure to deal with their sins, God told Eli that his sons would die in the flower of their youth. What was it that they did? What was it that got the Lord so upset? Remember, it was that they took the best portions of the meat for the sacrifice for themselves. They took the best for themselves and they gave the worst to the Lord. God was grieved by that. And he was grieved because they made the people of Israel abhor the sacrifice of the Lord. Now, it seemed like they were getting away with it. They seemed like it was working, you know, for them. Nothing was happening and they were cruising along and they were having their way with the women and they were storing up these best pieces of the meat. But here it catches up to them. And there's a principle in this that we need to pay attention to tonight. And it's this. If you make it your aim to take the best for yourself and leave the rest for the Lord, know this, it will catch up to you. It will catch up to you. But if you give the best to the Lord, the best of your day, the best of your time, the best years that you have, if you give that to the Lord, know this, God will bless you. You will be blessed. But if you're giving him the leftovers, know this, it will take its toll on you. It'll take its toll on you. How many of you have been to your 10 or 20 year reunion, high school reunion? Okay. Not very many of you. Some of you have. For those of you who have gone, I didn't go to mine. I went to Denise's. I don't think my school even had one. I've never, ever been notified of it. And I think people, when they left my school, it was like they never wanted to go back. It was kind of a bad place. But... uh, It's interesting, though, those of you who have been to those things, it's interesting because one of the things I think that kind of comes to your mind when you see that is how old everybody looks. You know, how the ones that used to just be all, you know, looking great and tough and, you know, it's like, gosh, some of you guys are probably, you know, I'm glad I didn't marry her, you know, or didn't marry him. And they've really, really aged, especially those who were unbelievers. Especially those who were living for themselves. Because you look at a person who's living for himself, who's taken the best that he has, and he's just pouring it into himself, it takes its toll. On that person's life, the wages of sin is death. And he who sows to the flesh will reap destruction. And you look and it's like, man, look at that guy. He's just worked. He's destroyed. But how different it is. How amazing it is to me when you see somebody who's been giving the best of themselves, their best years, the best of their time, and they're giving that over to the Lord, that that. He blesses them. 
And you look at their life and there's just a, a, a youthful type of vigorance there. And you see in them a, a sense of they just, they just seem younger. And they look younger. Giving the best there to the Lord. That's what happens when you live for the Lord. Hey, it's not a cakewalk, but it's refreshing, isn't it? It's refreshing to live for Jesus and to walk with Jesus. He leads us beside the still waters. He refreshes us. These guys, they took the best that was meant for the Lord. And it caught up with them. And they were taken out in the flower of their youth. Verse 12, it says, Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And now when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told it all that all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, what does the sound of the tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Now, Eli was 98 years old and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, what happened, my son? And so the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines and there has been a great slaughter among the people. And also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead and the ark of God has been captured and then it happened when, when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backward by the side of the gate and his neck was broken and he died for the man was old and heavy and he had judged Israel for 40 years. Notice when Eli died. It wasn't when he heard about the death of his sons, but it was when he heard that the ark had been captured. And that's what got him. And it broke his heart that the ark of God had been captured, that it had been taken. To give you kind of an, a, a comparison of, of maybe, you know, something that we could relate to that, that how this would be is let's pretend that here in all of San Diego County, we had one Bible. One Bible that, that was passed around that we all shared. And that Bible got captured got taken how devastating how that would be how difficult that would be that that was the effect here Eli hears this and it breaks his heart and he and he falls down backwards and he breaks his neck and he dies when he hears the news this is a bad day in Israel as we continue on it was now his daughter-in-law Phineas's wife was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman who stood by her said to her, do not fear. For you have borne a son, but she did not answer, nor did she regard it. And then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God 
had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel for the ark of God has been captured. For a Jewish woman, news that a son had been born was wonderful news. But not for the wife of Phineas on this day. To reflect her anguish and the national tragedy upon Israel, she names the child Ichabod. The name Ichabod means the glory has departed from Israel. So her grief here is so great that she's overcame her maternal joy of this son that she had given birth to. And she even ends up dying in the process. What a tragic story. She names this child Ichabod. On this day, the glory departed from Israel. Now here's the question. Had the glory really departed? In one sense, yes. The glory left when Israel stopped repenting and trusting God and started to superstitiously trust in the ark. That's really when the glory departed. The glory of God had indeed departed, but not because the ark of God had been captured, but really the ark was captured because the glory of God had already departed. It was Ichabod. And you know what? Tragically, you could write Ichabod across many church doors. You could write Ichabod across many ministries. You could write Ichabod across many individual Christians' lives. The glory has departed. Oh, everything is still in place. Everything is still there. But God is not enthroned among them anymore. And as Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, there's a form of godliness, but not the power thereof. Or there's a form of godliness there, but without the power. You know, it's interesting. Those of you who are, are students of the Bible, I, here's a little assignment for you. I didn't have the time that I wanted to to kind of go into this a little bit tonight, and, and, but, but I, I've been pondering this. For the last week or so, this whole idea of Ichabod, the glory is departed. And different times in the scripture, maybe do a word search on your computer, glory, and see the times where the glory departed. I can think of one offhand in, in, in Genesis chapter 3, after the fall. Suddenly, we, we, we see a, a picture, really, of the glory departing. God not dwelling in that close, intimate type of relationship anymore with Adam, the glory, in essence, had departed. I think we see another picture of it in the life of Samson. It's a tragic scene where where here's this guy that God had empowered. Here's this guy that God's hand was upon. Here's this guy that when the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him, he would just use these this mighty displays of strength to overcome the enemy and the people glorified in the Lord because of it. But when Delilah finally gets Samson to give up his secret and cuts off his hair, and then she says, Samson, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. And he gets up and he says, I'll go take care of them just like I've done in times past. And then it says there that he didn't know that the spirit of the Lord had departed from him. The glory had departed. And Samson didn't even realize it. 
He didn't even know it. He didn't even recognize it. It's interesting to think that that's what happens in times of sin. The glory departs. But it's also interesting to look at the times in the Bible when the glory of God is seen. We see it there in the book of Exodus. I think it's right around chapter 19 when when God is giving to the people of Israel the Ten Commandments. And there's lightnings and thunderings there coming from the, the mountain. And it's so intense that God says if even an animal comes and touches the base of the mountain, they're, they're going to die. And here's this in, incredible moment. The Ten Commandments is given on that particular day and and the glory of God is seen in all of its power and all of its display of glory and might. But on that day, 3,000 of the Israelites died. We see it a little bit later in the book of Exodus around chapter 33 and 34, right? The end of 33, beginning of 34, when Moses goes and he asks God, can I see your glory? And God says to Moses, no, no one can see my face and live. But then the Lord proclaims to Moses, look it up later, his name, how he's merciful, how he's long suffering. He goes into this long display of of, of who he is in his heart. And Moses sees a glimpse there as as God allows his backside to pass by. Moses catches a glimpse of the glory of God. The glory of God was in that place so much so that Moses' face was shining brightly when he came down that mountain and the people couldn't look at him. Now what interests me about that particular display is that we read in John chapter 12, Jesus makes a statement that he hadn't made up to that point in his ministry. And it's right before he's about to be betrayed. It's right before, it's a couple days before, the day before he's going to be going to the cross. And he makes the statement there in John chapter 12, right around verse 20. He says, now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he starts talking about his death. He starts talking about the cross. He starts talking about how he's going to be that seed fallen to the ground and that he's going to to die, that he might bear forth fruit. And what was Jesus saying? That his glory would be revealed, that it would be seen. The glory of God would be seen at the cross. Now, those of you who like to study, do this. Look at Exodus 33 and 34. And then consider what Jesus did on the cross. Consider what God declared concerning himself to Moses And then see how every single one of those attributes was displayed in the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says, "Okay, I'm going to give you a taste. I'm going to proclaim my name. This is who I am. And then Jesus revealed that to us. That's why we read in John chapter one, John writing, reflecting back, writes this, that we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the father, full of what? Full of grace and truth. Full of grace, God's undeserved favor upon a people that didn't deserve it and full of truth, his justice as he paid the price for humanity. That he didn't let sin go unpunished but he punished it in his son and in doing so paved a way, made a way for the salvation of the world. Here we see it was Ichabod. The glory had departed. 
But the glory of God is most clearly seen at the cross. And that tells me that we as individuals and we as a church can probably find ourselves in the safest place when we bring ourselves constantly, regularly before the cross. Before the cross. To remember what our Lord did for us. To reflect upon that, that when he died, we died. Chapter 5. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. And when the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. Dagon was the Philistine deity. He was a half man, half fish kind of creature. And they believed that he was the God who was responsible for blessing them in the area of their agriculture. So they take the ark and they place it in the temple of their fish god. And something interesting happens. Verse 3. And when the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning... There was Dagon, fallen on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. And so they took Dagon and set it in its place again. The Philistines come cruising into their temple to pay tribute to their God. And he's face down like he's worshiping before the ark. It's classic. And what do they do? Oh, check it out, man. Our, our God's like, you know, we, we better prop him back up again. We better set him back up on his throne. I am so glad that we worship a God who is able to prop us up. And who doesn't need to be propped up by us. I'm so glad that we serve a God who is able to save us and doesn't need to be saved by us. The Philistines served a God who needed to be rescued, who needed to be saved by them. Verse 4. And when they arose early in the next morning, there was Dagon falling on its face to the ground before the ark. And this time, the head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. And only Dagon's torso was left of it. He got worked. And therefore, neither the priest of Dagon nor any who who come into Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. But the hand of the Lord was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and he ravaged them and struck them with tumors. Both Ashdod and its territory. And when the men of Ashdod saw how it was, how it was, they said, the ark of the God of Israel must not remain with us for his hand is harsh toward us and and Dagon our God. Therefore, they sent and gathered to themselves all the lords of the Philistines and said, what shall we do with the ark of the God of Israel? And they answered, let the ark of the God of Israel be carried away to Gath. Now they're going to start trading it amongst their cities. And so they carried the ark of God of Israel away. And so it was after they had carried it away that the hand of the Lord was against the city with a very great destruction. And he struck the men of the city, both small and great, and tumors broke out on them. And therefore they sent the ark of God to Ekron. And so it was as the ark of God came to Ekron that the Ekronites cried out, saying, They have brought the ark of God of Israel to us to kill us and our people. And so they sent and gathered together all the lords of the Philistines and said, Send away the ark of the God of Israel and let it go back to its own place so that it does not kill us and our people. 
For there was a deadly destruction throughout all the city, and the hand of God was very heavy there. And the men who did not die were stricken with tumors, and the cry of the city went up to heaven. This is amazing to me. The Philistines come into this place where they bring the ark into the temple of Dagon. The first time, you know, Dagon's down on his face. The next time, Dagon is completely worked. His head's broken off. His hands are broken off. All that's left is his torso. And there's a statement being made here, you know. Who do you think the real God is? But what do they do? It's like, hey, these two gods cannot coexist together. So one of them's got to go. Let's send away the ark, you know. Crazy. Now, they were being afflicted as well because of having there the ark. And they drew that conclusion. But you know what's interesting when you consider the pagan deities is that in these, I think it was in Isaiah that the Lord declared that the, the, the people, their tendency is to set up gods like themselves who resemble them. That's why when you see like old pagan, you know, gods, I mean, they always, they, they look like a man. They resemble a man. They'll have a face of a man or, you know, uh, some type of form. Even on the old Indian totem poles, you know, they would have a man and an eagle and, you know, buffalo and, you know, this type of thing. But there's always, you know, making gods like themselves. And it's interesting, if you ever really studied the gods that they worship there in the Old Testament, is that each one of the gods represented something. For instance, the gods of Baal and Molech represented prosperity and materialism. The god Nebo represented education. The god Ashtaroth represented pleasure and sexuality. There were several gods who represented those things. Now, here's what's interesting to me. We have, in essence, those same gods today. There are people today in in our culture, in our society, who worship the god of materialism. There's people in our culture today who worship the gods of education. There are people today who worship the gods of pleasure and sexuality. Oh, they, they don't call them Molech and Baal or Nebo and Astro. They don't call them those things, but they worship them because that's what they're giving themselves to. That's where all their time and energy and attention primarily is going into. It's the pursuit of those things. It's to gratify themselves through those things. But here's the deal. What good do those gods do? When you find yourself in a difficulty. What good does does Ashtaroth do? Or what good does Baal and Molech do? When your daughter's fallen out of a two-story window and landed on the concrete and is unconscious in the hospital. Hey, cry out to your American Express car. See what will happen. Come on, American Express. Healer. Yeah. That doesn't work. Cry out to your master's degree. What good is it? No, who do people cry out to in those times? The true and living God. But for us, he needs to not just be the one that we cry out to when we find ourselves in a jam, but he needs to be the one that we are giving our allegiance to all the time. Because he is the true 
and the living God. And may none of us ever find ourselves in a place where, where we end up like, you know, Israel. Where we, we find out, you know what, the, the, he really is the Lord. But it's only because that thing that we have propped up to be that God, that thing of priority in our life has let us down. Oh, let's not go into that place. But let's realize that he's the true, the living God, and let's serve him with all of our hearts. Well, we'll pick this up in our study together next time in a week or so, and we'll see what happens here to the Ark of the Covenant. It's being shifted around at this point. Father, we thank you for your word. And God, we want to be a people who makes it our practice to give you, Lord, our best. The best of our day. The best of our time. Our best years given to you because you have given so much to us. We bless your name, Lord. We glory tonight in your goodness, in your patience, in your faithfulness, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.